You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When you think about retirement, do you have a strategy to help your money last as long as you do? That is the biggest fear by far for women. To help make sure you're ready for the future, schedule your complimentary wealth checkup at planefe.com slash hermoney. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't think anybody knows about the cross-cultural uses of hidden money. Women hid it in their aprons, they hid it in their Kotex box, you know. The idea was you needed money of your own in case you needed to escape or in case your husband disappeared. Hi, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. If you are listening to this episode the day that it drops, chances are you may be planning a Labor Day getaway for this coming weekend, maybe to the beach, tossing everything from sunscreen to your favorite magazines into your tote. I grew up on magazines. I love magazines. I have to admit, today I don't read as many of them as I used to. Sadly, there aren't as many as there used to be. And while I have always loved a good article about how to pick out the right swimsuit for your body type, I also really have appreciated how quote-unquote women's magazines stretched their legs to do content beyond what we might have thought of as typical in recent years, diving into important health issues and electoral politics and the gender wage gap. There is no doubt that they owe a debt of gratitude to the magazine that led the charge on that sort of smart, unbiased, thought-provoking, empowering women's content. And that was Ms. Magazine. Ms. Magazine was founded by Gloria Steinem, who was on the show, by the way, several years back. It was episode 70, boy, early days, on money and power, if you want to take a listen. Anyway, Ms. was founded back in 1972 in the midst of the second wave feminist revolution, which put the spotlight on social equality, sexuality, and reproductive rights. And if I can just paint a picture of that time period for a second, Roe v. Wade wasn't heard by the Supreme Court until 1973. It wasn't until 1974 that women were allowed to own their own credit cards without having a male co-signer. It was an era in which women were fighting for every inch of ground that we could gain. And Ms. was a very important handbook for success. Now, of course, as you can imagine, criticism of the magazine was sharp. Just after its publication, news anchor Harry Reasoner famously said he'd give the magazine six months before it ran out of things to say. Now, to his credit, he ended up apologizing years later. He probably had to. And today, in 2023, Ms. is celebrating its 51st 
year in business. Today, I am honored to be joined by Letty Cotton Pogrebin, one of the magazine's founding editors and writers who helped shape what feminism could look like in a liberated America. She not only spent 20 years shaping Ms. Magazine alongside Gloria Steinem, she's the author of 12 books, including her newest title, her life story, Shonda a memoir of shame and secrecy. She won an Emmy for the album Free to Be You and Me. And in 2018, she was also inducted into the Manhattan Jewish Hall of Fame. Letty, welcome. Such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Jean. I'm really happy to be with you. So can we start from the beginning, which is exactly what you did in your new book for listeners who aren't Jewish. Explain Shonda, and why did you choose it for the title of your memoir? In Yiddish, which is the language of Eastern European Jews, Shonda means shame. It means disgrace. It means embarrassment, humiliation. It's the worst thing that can happen to you other than the C word, which was whispered, and that was cancer, which was something to be ashamed of. So the complexity of immigrant efforts to fit in is so different from today's world where we are used to identity politics. Immigrants come over, they're proud of their origins, they hang on to their language, their culture. The opposite was true. That was the era of the melting pot. So you didn't want to cause a Shonda. Now, what would cause a Shonda? Besides the fact that you might have mental illness in your family or cancer in your family, which was a Shonda because who would want to marry into a family that had such things? (laughs) There was a Shonda around money problems, around poverty, around bad marriages, because everyone thought all American marriages were happy. (laughs) Talk about magazines, Jean. The Ladies' Home Journal was like my mother's Bible on how to be an American woman. And her discovery that there was a column called, Can This Marriage Be Saved?, was really very comforting for her because it meant other women had unhappy marriages. American women had unhappy marriages, but it was a Shonda in the Jewish community. So those are just a few examples. And I named my memoir Shonda, a memoir of shame and secrecy, because I realized when I was kind of assessing my life that it was defined by hiddenness, undercover, pretense. And so the word kind of encompassed all of that. I used to love that column also, Can This Marriage Be Saved? My first marriage could not, but many other marriages, I think, were probably saved by that column. There's so many great magazine columns that have been retired over the years. We could spend the entire time talking about those, but I'd rather talk about your family secrets. And how did you find out about them and that you had been living this life of secrecy so far down the road after your parents were gone? Well, I found out the worst secret that is worse for me in the sense that it upended my faith in adults. It made me realize that my parents lied. Uh, And that was a discovery when I was 12 years old that We weren't the perfect family that my parents had always presented to the world. Me, my sister Betty, who was 14 years older, family of four, two lovely girls, and my parents had pretended they were married in 1923. My sister was born in 1925. I was born in 1939. I got all that. That was my family biography. And then a cousin who got angry at me during a game of gin rummy 
during a bar mitzvah weekend celebration, and the whole family was there. This older cousin and I played cards, and my father had taught me to be quite a card shark. (laughs) So I beat her. I had 32 points. I had great hand, and she got furious. She lost it. And she upended the entire card table. The cards flew everywhere, and she screamed at me, you think you're so great. You think your family's so great. You weren't even in this family until your mother married your father, you know. And your sister isn't even your full sister. And I just fainted dead away. My brain at 12 years old could not absorb it. It blacked me out. And when I woke up, my parents were on either side of me like, They lifted me up. They got me into my coat. We were up in Winthrop, Massachusetts for this bar mitzvah of a cousin. And they somehow or other got me out on the beach. The Atlantic Ocean was roaring and the waves were crashing and the the birds were flapping. And I was listening to my parents tell me the truth about their lives, which they did little by little. All of it, again, crashing in like the waves. They were each married before. My mother had a child. That child is my sister, who is my half-sister because she has another father. And I discover my father had a daughter who he abandoned when he married my mother. They were, in fact, not married in 1923 to each other. They were married to other people. They got divorced, and they married each other in 1937. So all of this is bubbling and festering in my head, and I realized that my parents were liars. And I think it marked me for life. It certainly altered my sense of security that I couldn't accept surface explanations for anything or people's initial presentations, that many were acting out a charade, many were wearing masks. And ultimately, Jean, I discovered, thanks to my granddaughter, an enormous plastic bag, the kind that old department stores used to sell fur coats and put them in these enormous plastic bags. (laughs) And it was full of letters and documents and citizenship papers and adoption and driver's licenses and applications, you know, for bank accounts. It had everything in there of my parents' past, the past lives. And most of all, I heard their voices through their letters Because when my mother was seven months pregnant with me, and this was pretty weird, my father left to go to what was then Palestine, where his father had died and had been killed in an Arab raid in Tiberias. My father could have gone two years before. That's when his father died. But somehow or other, he chose to go when my mother was seven months pregnant with me. And as a result, I mean, that is a horrible thing to me that he did, leaving my mother But it was a very good thing for a memoirist or biographer because they wrote to each other every single day. Hundreds of letters between my parents, between my father and my sister, who he adopted or supposedly adopted. Turns out, I'm not sure, there actually were no final adoption papers. And little by little, as I'm writing this memoir, I discover I'm not writing a memoir. I'm writing a catalog of secrets in my family. It's amazing because... We all grow up, I think, with secrets like this, right? We all grow up not knowing a lot of different things about the people who raised us and especially people of that generation. I mean, we could talk about my family's stories and the engagement ring that my mother found in a vault that belonged to my grandfather and my 
my aunt explained to her that, no, that wasn't the ring that he gave to my grandmother. That was the one that he gave to his first fiance, who he found in bed with the butcher. Oh, my God. That is a perfect example of the variety. (laughs) They're sexual secrets. You know, there are secrets in terms of prior lives and prior children who have sort of gone by the wayside. And this is a wonderful example. But he saved the ring. My mother saved the letters. And, you know, I've often wondered why save letters that show the misery of your marriage, that show so many of the weaknesses of each of you. And my father was a kind of poser, a, a financial poser, in the sense that he always dressed very nattily and he had a good car. And I always thought we were not wealthy, but extremely comfortable. And I discovered through the letters that my father was one of those small-time lawyers. He wasn't a big-time lawyer, as he sort of masqueraded. And I discovered that he was not stingy, which is what my interpretation was, but actually financially insecure. So that's why he didn't get give things and give me things and, and give me money when I was at college or any of the things that my friends experienced. What do you think it is as we talk about secrets, particularly about money, that makes us so secretive? I mean, these days, a lot of magazines and newspapers write about it and they call it financial infidelity. They've given it a big name. What is it about money specifically that drives us underground? I think you have to make a gender differentiation to answer that question because money is much more complicated for women than for men. I think for men, as I've experienced it, and I've been around a lot of years now as an adult, I would say in the 60-odd years of my adulthood, I've discovered that men are very comfortable with discussing money if they have it and not if they don't. And if they're in contexts where it's competitive, for example, in the philanthropic world, they will be grateful if somebody asks them for $100,000, whereas another man might be terrified if someone asks them for $100,000, because that's overestimating his capacity. When I do a lot of fundraising for the causes that I care about, and I care about other causes, so I've done a lot of those conversations, phone calls, solicitations. If you ask women for more money than the list that you're given suggests they can give, They're horrified. What makes you think I have that kind of money? They don't want to be valued for their money. Men like to have you think they have a lot of money. They're not worried you're going to just make a friend because of the money. I mean, the reaction is so distinctive and different that I actually once wrote a piece about it for New York Times Magazine, Women, Money, and Power. Why do you think it's more complicated for women? Because women have been raised to associate money with masculinity. My mother kept a stocking in her lingerie drawer stuffed with dollar bills. In Yiddish, it was called a knipple. Other people would call it a nest head. And I learned from you and from your, one of your columns that so many cultures have some version of the knipple. And you're in my book for that reason. I thought it was wonderful research. I couldn't find anything other than your column. I don't think anybody knows about the cross-cultural uses of hidden money. Women hid it in their aprons. They hid it in their Kotex box. The idea was you needed money of your own in case you needed to escape or in case 
your husband disappeared. It was called Mad Money. My mother, when I discovered her nipple, I couldn't understand what all these dollars are doing stuffed in her nylon stocking. And she hesitated. I remember I was nine, but I remember because she was like very nervous and very upset that I had found it. And here I was facing her with it, and she had to break ranks with my father to tell me the truth. And she did, because she said she always felt women needed mad money because in case you got mad at your boyfriend, you needed to be able to get home on your own. But you had to hide it because having money would suggest that you didn't de- weren't able to depend on him having enough. So th- think about the push-pull of that. You had it tucked away in your purse in order to be able to escape if you had to, and you couldn't let him know you had any money because he would be emasculated if he thought you needed money. So where do you think we are today in this whole scheme of things? My mother would take mad money on dates. Right. So that if she needed to go home, she had, if she got mad, she had money to get in a taxi and go home. Exactly. I've raised a daughter as well as a son. So what changes do you see about how women are experiencing money today? Do you think it is still more complicated for us than it is for men? I have six grandchildren and their view of money and dating and so on, they're all in their 20s is completely different. I mean, they talk openly about who's going to pay. They never assume the women, my young women grandchildren, never assume that somebody's going to pay for them. I mean, they just would feel reduced as human beings if somebody just infantilized them and assumed you're helpless or you're the little demure little woman and, and you don't have any money. But they openly say, I don't have a job. I'm trying to get a job. You know, I can't afford dinner. Oh, don't worry about it. I'll pay. That sort of conversation is completely open. I think my children have said they wished we talked more about money in our household. We talked about money at the dinner table in amusing ways. We wanted our children to know how to open bank accounts and how to have savings. I remember my husband at the dinner table once said, okay, we're going to talk about salaries, like making money. Who do you think makes more money? He speaks to Abigail. Your teacher, Sam, because they went to Walden School, which was a progressive school. They called their teachers by their first name. Your teacher, Sam, or Reggie Jackson. And, you know, all the kids at the table are thinking, and they say, Sam, because his work is more important and because he's teaching us and, you know, he's making the next generation of people and citizens. They gave these long preorations on why their teacher must be making more money than Reggie Jackson. And it was a shock to them that athletes make more than teachers. So I thought that was a really great wake-up call. When I explained to my children that my father gave my mother an allowance every Friday, I mean, they laughed. That's like we gave our children allowances. That there was actually a husband treating a wife like a child was unthinkable to them. So their worldview is completely different. But so is the cost of bread and rent and everything else. When I got out of school, I was making $65 a week as a substitute secretary at Simon & Schuster, the book publishing company. And I, when I got out of school, rented an apartment for $68 a month because I knew you had to do one quarter of your monthly earnings. 
So for one week, I earned $65. So for one month, I paid $68. And I said to my grandson, what is the formula now? He said the exact same thing. Only I pay $800 a month, you know? I mean, but the formula is says stay the same, but the money is like mad money to me or monopoly money. Well, I think a lot of people who are listening who are trying to live in New York City are rolling their eyes and thinking in New York City, the formula is way out of whack because it's very, very hard for many people unless you're working on Wall Street. You know, if you're working in publishing, you're spending much more than 25% on rent. You're lucky if you're spending 35% or 40 and you're scraping by in other ways to make it work. A lot of your book, especially in the later chapters, gets political. And I want to talk about one particular political issue. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, hosted by CNBC's Karen Feinerman for intimate cocktail party-style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Whether your retirement is a few decades away or right around the corner, you need a strategy to help make sure you have enough saved and invested to do and see and experience what you want most. It's time to make sure your money is working for you. It's been more than a year now that I've been working with the planners from Edelman Financial Engines as the host of the Everyday Wealth Podcast. I am a fan of their holistic approach, the fact that they don't just look at your investments, but at your whole life. You can request a complimentary wealth checkup at planefe.com slash hermoney. Hey, you guys, it's Jean. I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll love because I love it. Freakonomics Radio. Every week, host and best-selling author Stephen Dubner dives into the hidden side of business and economics and so much more. He interviews CEOs, historians, even Nobel laureates to explore all kinds of topics like whether AI has a sense of humor and whether two CEOs are better than one. If you are curious like me and just looking to better understand the world around you, you will find it on Freakonomics Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back with Letty Cotton Pogrebin. She is author of the new book, Shonda, look, I know that through the years, a lot of your work has been political and political issues very quickly bump up against pocketbook issues. One of those issues, especially right now, is abortion. And women told the truths about their abortions in the first issue of Ms. Magazine. 30 years ago, you told your own abortion story in The New York Times. And you write about an abortion that became a financial issue for you in the book. I think it's relevant today because of where we are right now. Tell us about that. When abortion was illegal, it cost what was then a huge amount of money, 350 to $600 for an abortion. And who was getting pregnant? <laughs> Mostly unmarried women, although there were a lot of married women who made the decision very responsibly because they already had more children than they could afford to raise and feed and house. And uh, for me, 
pro-choice has always been pro-child because it's a huge decision. And in the years of illegality, when it wasn't covered by health insurance, so there was no such thing. It was all back alley. It was all kitchen table. It was all take your life in, in your own hands or put your life in the hands of somebody you didn't know had a medical degree or not. You had to scrape together the money. And for me, my mother had died. I don't think I ever had a birds and bees discussion with my mother. I had no idea about fertility and so on. And when I got pregnant, the only person I knew who had $350 was my father. And to go to a Jewish father in 1959 and say, I mean, the Shonda of being pregnant, and I was a senior in college, and I simply didn't have $350. And neither did any of my friends, nor would I tell any of my friends. Why? Because it was such a Shonda. You were imprisoned by isolation and shame. I hold the view that we are partly responsible for the loss of Roe v. Wade because even though it was legal for 50 years, we didn't own it. We allowed the shame to be defined by the opposition. And therefore, we didn't form the kind of solidarity, the kind of organizations. We didn't create the kind of campaign of consciousness that is now being created where women are stepping forward and telling their stories. And people are seeing the humanity of these decisions, the necessity of these decisions, the difficulty of it, but the inevitability of it in certain situations for the good of the child. So I think the money aspect is all wrapped up with who needs the abortion and women earn less, have less, therefore can't pay. Therefore, they have to ask somebody many times a man, many times a husband or the boyfriend who they don't want to be indebted to. It is such a convoluted, knotty set of problems. And now more and more women are speaking honestly about it. And when it comes to funding abortions in that women need and can travel to abortion-friendly states, that's where I think the money has to go now. That is, we as individuals who say, how can I help? How can I help? You can obviously lobby your congressperson and senators when it comes to the far-flung possibility way out of the realm of imagination right now that we could have federal legislation. But what you can do right now is you can make sure every woman who needs it can get to a safe place to have an abortion. I'm putting my money in two places. One is the organizers and the educators like Parent Parenthood, and one is to the wonderful on-the-ground sources of travel money, hotel money, child care. That's what women need. And if we're going to raise a generation of wanted children, then we have to help women only have the children they want. Amen to that. Let's talk about the ending of the book. Shonda ends with your wish that everyone experience the joy of a secret free life, but you explicitly advise against leading a shame-free life. Right. Why is it better to carry shame than secrets? What's the difference? Well, I kind of categorize shame in two bundles, good shame and bad shame. Bad shame is corrosive. Bad shame makes you feel you'll never be a good person no matter what you do, or you're scarred, or you're forever marked as a bad person because of something you did or something you lived through. And good shame is what makes you—I use the example in the book. I'm a walker, and in Central Park we have walking areas that are really like forests. So I'm walking in the ramble, and the tissue falls out of my pocket, and there's nobody around. I mean, it's really like deserted. And I pick up the tissue. Now, in New York City, a lot of people don't pick up stuff. You know, that's why we have an anti-littering law. 
And I pick it up and put it back in my pocket. And I think to myself, nobody was watching. Maybe God was watching, but nobody is around. I could have left that. And I'm walking at a, I walk at a very fast pace and it's a physical fitness activity for me. And I stopped and I went back and I picked it up. And good shame is what made me do it. I couldn't live with myself if I left on this pristine, wonderful that New York City has this is such a remarkable miracle in itself. I'm going to leave a tissue on the ground? No, I'm not. That's good shame that motivates better behavior. And I, it goes by the name of conscience. This conversation was wonderful. I have loved having it and getting to know you a little bit better. Where can we buy the book and find out more about your work? Thank you, Jean. Well, I have a website, www.lettycottonbogurban.com. I have a newsletter you can sign up for it with a little button on the website. And I always ask people to buy books from bookshop.org. That's where we send people as well. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jean. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word for our sponsors. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the host of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. And we're back for our mailbag. My daughter, Julia, is with us today. Jules, when I listen to somebody like Letty, I'm always very conscious of how we would not live in the world that we live in today without people like her. Totally. Can't take it for granted. No. And it's incredibly frustrating. I could hear it in her voice. The fact that this year in particular, it feels like we've taken many steps in the wrong direction. But it's only because of people like her that we were moving in the right direction to begin with. So I hope, I know you hope that we are able to right this ship once again. But I think we owe her a debt of gratitude. Yeah, absolutely. All right, should we get into it? We can absolutely get into it. You kick us off. All right. Our first question today comes to us from an anonymous listener. She writes, Thank you for your fantastic podcast and all of the work you have done to change so many lives for the better. My question is about filial responsibility laws. My estranged parents reside in a state that has filial responsibility laws. I live in a different state which does not have filial responsibility laws. I have not resided with them or received any financial support from them since I moved out in 1994 at the age 17. 
We communicated infrequently and visited perhaps twice in person after that, but they permanently estranged themselves from me in writing in January 2021 because I am not a practitioner of their religion. I do not anticipate any future communication. I just stumbled across the concept of filial responsibility laws today, and I am curious if you have any recommendations for how to reduce one's risk of exposure in this setting of complete estrangement. I have savings in addition to protected assets such as a home and retirement accounts, all from earned income. Thank you for your insight. Apologies for the emotionally fraught question. So I got to admit, this was a new one for me. Fortunately, I see these questions in advance, and I had to go down the rabbit hole of figuring out what filial responsibility is. It's a legal concept in which an adult child is financially responsible for their parents' healthcare costs if the parents are unable to pay them themselves. Not all states have these laws. Only 29 have them at this point, and that number continues to change. Maryland, for example, repealed theirs about a decade ago. And I get why this woman is scared, that if a parent cannot reasonably provide for themselves, basically these laws say that the child is expected to step in and do that as long as they can do so after taking care of their own immediate family. And some of these laws, and they're different in different states, but some of these laws give nursing homes, for example, the right to either come after the child for money through collections or come after the estate. You're most likely to be asked to pay if your parent does not qualify for Medicaid, if your parent is impoverished, if your parent has medical bills and can't pay for them, or if you do have the ability to pay or your parents fraudulently transferred assets to you. And basically that fraudulent transfer of assets they're talking about, sometimes families go to huge lengths to try to qualify for Medicaid, which will pay long-term care costs by moving money out of the parent's name and into the child's name when really the parents should be using that money to pay for their own health care bills. Now, clearly, this did not happen in this scenario. It's also very unclear how your parents are situated financially. If they are not impoverished, I don't think you have very much to worry about, but I'm not a lawyer. And what I would do is spend a couple hundred dollars on an hour of time with an estate planning attorney who specializes in elder care who lives in your state. Because one of the things that I did find going down the rabbit hole was that if your parents live in a state that has filial responsibility, sometimes that state will come after people even if they live in a state that doesn't have filial responsibility. So I would either call a lawyer in your state or call a lawyer in your parents' state, spend $100, talk about the situation, make sure that there is really nothing 
that you need to be worried about. And if there is something that you need to be worried about, ask how you can shelter your assets so that you don't have to worry about it. Because look, I'm not an ethicist either, but I don't think that you have any responsibility to these people who have estranged themselves from you. That's my take. And I know that might sound a little harsh, Julia, but, uh, you know, no, her parents basically you know, said they... Hard reality, hard reality, but you're here to deliver the advice, so... Yeah, and her parents said they wanted nothing to do with her. So that's terrible, but I don't think it means that she needs to step up and support them. All right, let's go to the next one. Our next question today comes to us from Mary. She writes, Hi, Jean. Hoping you can help me with this. My ex-husband worked for the city of Youngstown in the state of Ohio, so his pension is called Oppers. We divorced in 2010 after 32 years of marriage. He didn't retire until he was 72 and passed away in March 2023. I only received two years of benefits, and when he passed, they immediately terminated my benefits. In my decree, it clearly states that when he retires, he is to name me as a beneficiary so I get survivor benefits. He did not do that. He left it to my daughters. After much haggling, I finally received a letter from Uppers saying they are not bound by the decree and it's up to the employee to choose his retirement options. I assume that because they have a copy of the decree and the quadro and because I was receiving the benefits that it would continue. My divorce attorney will not respond to my calls or certified letter. My daughters are in their early 30s. Both have great jobs and are going to make it right with me. So here's my question. I'm done fighting and I'm working it out with my kids. So should they take the money and just give me the monthly $658 plus yearly COLA? Or should we figure out a lump sum amount? I'm trying to do the best tax thing. I currently take $600 a month from my IRA and $2,152 from Social Security. So I need this benefit back. This is such a gut punch. Looking forward to your advice. Boy, there is a lot to unpack in this question. And I feel like this is just going to be the call a lawyer edition of our mailbag because I'm going to tell you in the end that you need to call a lawyer. But before we get there, I'm very glad that your daughters are going to make this right and that your daughters are going to pass along the money. But as I read this, there's no tax implication to you. Your daughters are receiving this money as pension income. So it's income to them, and they have to pay taxes on it at their tax rate. When they give the money to you, they're essentially just giving you a gift, and they're allowed to give you this much of a gift tax-free every year with no implications whatsoever. So the question here is, what is the tax scenario of your daughters going to do to this money? How much of a bite in that $658 are your daughters going to have to pay in income tax? And what is that going to do to the amount of money that is coming to you? The other thing that I don't really understand is that your daughters are continuing to receive this money. Your daughters were not minors when their father died. 
if they were minors, they would likely continue to receive survivor benefits. But not being minors, I wouldn't think that they were going to continue to get this money. And so it makes me think there may be some benefit if they are still eligible to receive it in just getting it all out of there as a lump sum before it gets cut off. And then you can deal with the tax scenario of all of it. All of which, again, is to say you need to talk to another lawyer and preferably with some tax experience specializing in this pension system. Chances are pretty good that you know other people who worked for the city of Youngstown. I would look specifically for an attorney who is up on this pension system. That may be a name that you are able to get from the pension system just by making a phone call. And I would ask that person for information on how to make this right, because it's unclear how long this benefit will continue. And just one last thing for people who are going through a divorce. In some cases, an easy solution is to put a life insurance policy in place that will provide for the spouse should something happen down the road to a former spouse. That may be something that you are able to do. Finally, one more last thing. I'm assuming that the Social Security that you are receiving is your former spouse's Social Security. Because you were married to him for 10 years, you are eligible to receive his full Social Security benefit. Step into his shoes after he dies and get that amount, which I'm assuming is higher than yours. If you're not currently doing it, that's something that you definitely want to look into. I know it's complicated. Thanks for writing and sharing your story with us, and good luck. Good luck, and um, thanks for writing to us. And if you have any other money-related questions, we would love to hear from you. You just send them to us by emailing us at mailbag at hermoney.com. We are going to take just a quick break. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you, and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties. Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. And we're back with your money tip of the week. We've all heard the general rules for shopping at the supermarket. Go with a list, stick to the perimeters, avoid things right at eye level. Here's another one. Buy your favorites in bulk. Now, that might sound silly if you live alone or tend to eat out a lot, but it can lead to a huge savings on your monthly grocery bill. 
While it may take a little mental energy on your part to get over the sticker shock of a $300 Costco bill versus a $50 weekly bill, in the long run, it can be more affordable, but only if you do it right. Remember, we waste 40% of food in this country, so if you buy the wrong things in bulk, they are likely to go bad. Start with dry goods, beans, flours, rice, and other products that'll keep for a long time. If you buy proteins like chicken, make sure you have room in your freezer and consider a vacuum sealer so that you can get the right portions and avoid freezer burn. In my house, we keep a list of what's in the freezer, and it helps us meal plan for the week. We just check them off as we use them. It also means we don't double up when we go to the store. For a full list of items to stockpile and other ways to save on your weekly bills, head to hermoney.com. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Letty Cotton Pogrebin for sharing how our family secrets shape our lives. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, hosted by CNBC's Karen Feinerman for intimate cocktail party style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk soon.